Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending where you are in the world. Um, welcome to our event um, today. Um, my name is Dr. Rebecca Naden. I'm the director of the Global Risks and Resilience Programme here at ODI. So welcome to today's event on nature-based nature green infrastructure and African experience and potential. So we're going to be discussing, um, as the name of the event suggests, um, green infrastructure in Africa. And we're going to be thinking about how it's used and its potential for reducing disaster risk and achieving multiple sustainable development goals. And most importantly, what needs to be done to scale up and support this work. So we're really excited as well today that the discussion is going to be based on a new study just published by ODI, um, which analyzes the use and financing of nature-based green in infrastructure. So in addition to our colleagues um, here who are in London with me, I'm delighted to also introduce a distinguished panel of presenters and commentators from several African countries who are joining us online, all of whom are experts in implementing these initiatives. So just to note for everybody that the event is being recorded um, and a final copy of the recording will appear in a few days online after the event. So please do feel, feel free to share it with anybody who wasn't able to join um, online today. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce the reason why we're all here today. So what do we mean when we say nature-based green infrastructure? Essentially, we're talking about infrastructure that harnesses or uses ecological functions for the benefit of societies. Clearly, this has great potential to contribute to disaster risk reduction and bring about multidimensional development. And the benefits of nature-based infrastructure are clearly many. And some of those we covered in the ODI's new report. For example, the ability to reduce inland and close coastal flood risk, as well as the risks of erosions and landslides. To improve the quality and regulation of freshwater flow flows, cooling, especially in cities. And for those of us who are here in London today, um, we're, we'd be very grateful for that. It's been pretty warm the past few days. Also to enhance the productivity of agricultural land and fisheries and optimize building design and improve mobility and quality of life in urban settings. So nature-based infrastructure can be critical tools at the disposal of governments, communities and development partners, which can help simultaneously address global national commitments under the Sendai framework, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the United Nations 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development as well, and perhaps most critically, local priorities. So how's the event going to work today? Well, First of all, we're going to hear about the inspiring potential and achievements of nature-based infrastructure, as well as the challenges of the, of the role of finance from our keynote speakers. We're joined by Alvina Henriette of Praslin from the island in Seychelles and from Eric Hubbard of Freetown, Sierra Leone. Then we're going to hear more from the authors of the new ODI report on financing of green infrastructure and recommendations for donors and governments from Mari Dupois, Adriana Covedo, and Letitia Pentinotti of ODI. Apologies, Letitia, uh, forget you're mispronouncing your surname. This will be followed by remarks from a number um, of experts. So 
I'm delighted to turn to our first speaker, who is Dr. Elvina Henriette. Dr. Henriette is now the Programme Manager for the Terrestrial Restoration Action Society of the Seychelles, or TRAS Seychelles, which is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to restore degraded terrestrial, coastal and marine sites of the Seychelles Islands. Dr. Henriette, I hope you can introduce how Trust Seychelles is working with others to create a common vision and mission for ecosystem restoration. Um, Dr. Henriette, over to you. Thank you very much, Rebecca, and uh, good morning, good afternoon to everybody. I just wanted to know if you all hear me. Perfect. Okay, brilliant. It's a pleasure for me to, uh, to be with you today and greetings from uh, the lovely hot uh, Seychelles. So um, I will give you um, our experience here in the Seychelles in terms of um, um, nature-based green infrastructure. Um, uh, Rebecca has already introduced me and our organization. Um, and we work mainly to restore degraded ecosystems. And we do that together with the local communities. So next slide, please. Just to give you a context um, of the Seychelles. So basically the Seychelles is um, an archipelago to the east coast of, of Africa. We have 155 islands covering an exclusive economic zone of 1.3 uh, square kilometers. So very uh, large seascape but the landmass is only 455 square kilometers. So very small landmass. Uh, out of those islands on um, less than um, 20 islands are inhabited with uh, 100,000 people. So a very small population you can imagine. Um, our work is based on Prale Island, which is the second largest island uh, within the archipelago, only uh, about 450 square kilometers. And basically, you can go around the island in just half an hour in, in, in a car. And it has got a very small population of about 8,000 people. And we heavily depend on tourism. So um, basically, the problem that we are facing on, on, on Prale, if we move to the next slide, please. Um, um, the main factor which is affecting biodiversity and livelihood on Prale is uh, human-induced um, forest fires whereby 40% of the island have been uh, degraded. If you look um, on the map, you can see all the shaded areas are the 40% of the island that is uh, um, degraded. Um, so the problem is, is, um, is being aggravated by changes in climate leading to uh, more drought um, periods and, uh, and less rain. So um, the consequences of the forest fire basically uh, leads to um, a loss of forest cover, the soil becomes very much exposed, leading to soil erosion, compaction, reduced fertility of the soil, which makes natural um, regeneration of the forest very difficult. So all of these factors threaten the livelihoods of the uh, communities living down here. Next one, please. So um, forests are essential for our local climate because they produce the clouds that gives us our local rain. So we strongly depend on forest ecosystems for the uh, provision of drinking water. It's the only way that we get our fresh water. And water scarcity is now becoming a serious problem in the face of uh, climate change. Next one, please. 
So um, what is trust doing um, for us to, to deal with uh, those um, issues? Um, basically, uh, trust um, established a long-term restoration program 14 years ago for us to educate and raise awareness of the local communities about forest conservation and the need for uh, restoration. And um, we put in place uh, various actions for us to do the restoration of the degraded ecosystems. And um, we do this uh, together with the local communities. So one of the first things that we did was to establish the, um, our nurseries for us to produce um, the seedlings needed for the uh, restoration. And um, we have the largest native nursery here um, uh, in the Seychelles. And um, we are basically the leading expert in Seychelles in terms of native plant propagation. And uh, we do that together with um, uh, volunteers who come and assist us to uh, produce the plants. On top of that, this year we established um, solar panels that allows us to irrigate um, our nurseries. So in terms of on the site, you will see here on this slide that we do clear invasive species from our site because after forest fires, the invasive species quickly uh, establish on site. So whenever we want to do restoration, we need to clear off those invasive species and then we do the planting with the native ones. Next slide, please. On some of, uh, of our sites, uh, the situation is very different. As you will see on this slide, we've got areas that are very barren, open with red soil. Um, there's no forest on, on them. And before we can do any intervention, we need to halt the soil erosion. And we do that by putting in place anti-erosion um, palm barriers. They are made from palm leaves. And the wooden poles that hold the barriers in place are made from invasive species. So it's a way of controlling the invasive species as well. And this is a technique that is based on indigenous knowledge. So we put those barriers in place and then we plant um, native plants in between those barriers in order for us to uh, reconstruct the forest. So we do the planting um, by engaging with um, local um, communities who comes to assist us um, in our restoration uh, program. As you will see on the next slide, um, there are various um, organizations who joins us. There are school children, people from the government, from uh, other NGOs, from the private sector, hotels and banks. All of those uh, people volunteer with us on our program for us to, to replant those degraded um, sites because it's very difficult for us to do it ourselves. We've got a very small team, so we need to engage um, the local communities to assist us. So here um, on the next slide, you will see an example of uh, an area that we are restoring. It's a hillside that is above the marine park. And you can imagine um, if there was no intervention to restore this site, you can imagine all the soil that will be eroded and end up in the marine path. And uh, there it will have other impacts onto marine life, but also human livelihood. Next one, please. Apart from uh, doing um, hillside restoration, we also do um, mangrove and wetland restoration because we do have um, uh, coastal degraded um, ecosystems as well. Um, so we've been pioneering uh, mangrove restoration here on, on Prale which has given us um, opportunities to learn more about um, uh, mangrove propagation, but also the planting techniques. And we found out also about the different uh, factors that are affecting the success of uh, uh, mangrove restoration, such as very hard um, uh, predation by crabs. 
And here we have to use um, photodegradable um, wraps to protect the young siblings until they are old enough um, to, you know, for them to, to grow. So we've done that by engaging with communities as well. And uh, on the next slide, you will see um, an example of before and after uh, restoration. So we are now getting very good results. And um, our mangrove uh, um, restoration is showing at least a 70% um, success. So what are the challenges that we are, we are facing? The main challenge at the moment is the um, variability in climate. We are getting uh, dry spells even during the rainy season, and uh, this uh, creates severe dry conditions for our plantations. So we have to come up with some techniques uh, um, such as stormwater reservoirs for us to capture rainwater for irrigation. So now we are thinking of uh, all the measures that we can adopt and adapt um, into future restoration programs, such as the, uh, the lock and spill drains or infil infiltration canals, as done by the uh, Incas from Peru. I mean, uh, the Incas from Peru, they have a very good irrigation system, as you can see on the photos on the far um, right. And for us to deal with the lack of water on our side, so we will need to invest more into such um, 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 irrigation system in future. The second um, challenge that we are facing, um, you will see on the next slide, um, is maintenance of the, the restored sites. Um, plant maintenance is a critical part um, for the success of, of restoration. In the past, a lot of projects have failed because they fail um, to, um, to, to maintain the restored sites. So restoration, um, um, the maintenance is in terms of uh, removal of uh, invasive species that are re-encroaching onto the site and uh, maintenance also of, uh, of the plants. Uh, these are uh, very time consuming, tedious, but very important to ensure the success of restoration. Next one, please. So in terms of our project, it's very important for us to train and educate the local communities because we need to, do, um, to get them to have ownership of, uh, of the restoration programs as well. So we do training in plant propagation, plant identification, planting techniques. Um, uh, and um, in terms of education, we have partnered with Gaia Seychelles, which is another NGO um, who initiated a kids club called a Little Explorers Club. Um, to engage the kids in uh, conservation activities and for them to understand the issues and how we came up uh, with uh, solutions uh, together. We also do ecotourism activities such as the Holiday with a Difference, which is a carbon offsetting initiative that encourages um, tourists to buy and plant a tree to offset their carbon footprint. So, what are the key strategies and elements that uh, lead to the success of, of restoration? Um, we will find out more about this on the next slide. Um, uh, the strategies basically depends on what sort of objectives we decide to, to put in place. Here, I will only talk about two sets of, of objectives. One is um, how do we generate financial incomes for people's livelihood or for nonprofit conservation and restoration work, and how we build that into our restoration program. And we can do that through various strategies, such as developing nature-based tourism, sustainable businesses, uh, like guided tools on restored sites, and also other strategies are to uh, promote and manage forestry and agroforestry practices in restoration programs, because these provide alternative incomes for the people participating in the restoration program. 
Other strategies are managing timber plantations or non-timber forest products, uh, um, bamboo, and also uh, producing compost um, uh, that uh, can be done by the use of invasive species or, or green waste. So these are just some of the strategies important for um, the success of restoration programs. The second set of strategies deals more with how we sustainably manage our watershed and our resources. And this uh, is done through other strategies such as collecting the data information that we need uh, to inform our restoration program for us to know whether it's being a success or, or, or not. And secondly, very important strategy is reaching out and engaging communities to build their awareness on watershed management and restoration. And through our experiences, we found out that the most important strategy is to empower the people and to get a commitment for them to volunteer to environmental restoration. So finally, I will share with you some key uh, recommendations. Um, here in Seychelles, now, um, our natural resources, of course, are under threat. They are essential for our resilience, economic development, and livelihoods. And hence, it is very important for us to sustain the awareness of the dangers of neglecting um, these resources. We need to involve communities in the restoration um, process. And it is important for us to foster science-based restoration approaches um, whenever we are doing um, uh, such restoration programs. Um, we found that, that uh, hands-on training and mentorship program impart knowledge to, to the local communities, and this should be incorporated into every project. Collaboration with key stakeholders is very important because it enhances ownership and deepens group solving skills and should be further enhanced um, in, in projects. Um, we've seen that maintenance of those restored sites are important if we want uh, our program to be successful. And we need to further develop and integrate cost-effective indigenous practices, such as the um, palm leaf anti-erosion barriers in restoration um, programs. In Seychelles, um, uh, we are advocating to the, uh, the government for them to have regulations um, for offenders who um, uh, for offenders to basically restore areas that uh, um, they damage, you know, because we don't really have a law that forces them to, to restore or to functionally co contribute to uh, restoration of those areas that they damage. So all in all, um, it's very important for us to um, empower the people and incorporate wealth generation initiatives um, into our programs so that it becomes financially sustainable in, in the long term. So, um, uh, so basically, um, uh, this is uh, my opportunity to share with you um, what we are doing in the Seychelles um, from uh, an NGO perspective. And uh, with the last, last slide, you will see some lovely photos of uh, some of the actions that, um, that we've been doing here in the Seychelles, especially with the uh, communities, engaging them into um, restoration through nature-based infrastructure. Thank you for your attention. And um, thank you so much, Dr. Henriette. We really appreciate that very rich um, presentation and, and how you demonstrated how it's possible to facilitate pro productive partnerships among a range of diverse actors. Um, I was particularly struck um, by sort of two elements of, of course, one was the knowledge sharing um, aspect that you pulled out in terms of the infiltration drains, irrigation drains, learning from Peru. Um, that I thought that was really interesting. And but also I think what came very clearly um, throughout your presentation was that importance of engaging the local communities, but really providing a means by which they could do that. 
um, and, and engaging them on those solutions so they can really feel part of the solutions, the anti-erosion palm barriers, the mangrove planting. Um, and I, I was also struck as well on, I think on the, your sort of previous slides where you sort of said the most important part of the strategy was that empowerment and commitment by the volunteers to the environmental restoration. Um, I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to spend some time in the Seychelles, actually. So I, I, I can really vouch for the strong community spirit um, that, that prevails. And um, I was taking part in a marine conservation um, expedition. We were um, measuring the um, coral growth um, after, after some severe bleaching incidents. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I'm now going to... Um, hand over and introduce um, our second um, speaker, um, Mr. Eric Hubbard, who is online, hopefully, um, with us from Berlin. So Mr. Hubbard serves as the Africa Regional Focal Point at the Urban Biodiversity Hub and also co-leads the Natura Network Africa Regional Team for the production of Global Based Solutions Road Map. And since 2019, Eric has also served as an advisor to the mayor of Freetown, Sierra Leone and Freetown City Council. So Mr. Hubbard, um, I understand is currently preparing to also receive an international award in Berlin for his um, ambitious work. So a big congratulations to him for that. So we are very grateful for his time. Um, Mr. Hubbard, can I invite you to tell us a little bit more about your um, work that you're doing on Freetown, the tree town, um, and the innovative arrangements for financing this in initiative? Mr. Hubbard, over to you. Hello there. Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, okay. excellent. Well, brilliant. Uh, again, my name is Eric Hubbard, and I, it is my great pleasure to be with you. Uh, and to have been a part of uh, producing um, this really important piece, um, report that looks at uh, nature-based infrastructure in Africa. Um, the Freetown, Freetown is a, you can go to the next slide. The Freetown is a, a city that is um, deeply affected by climate. Um, like most coastal cities globally and coastal cities in Africa in particular. Um, the, the, the context uh, is driven by increasing levels of rainfall and temperature that has made um, the population, which is 1.2 million people, uh, on pace to be 2 million people um, by 2030 um, in a a space that was designed for 400,000. Half of the space was forest um, with a rate of deforestation at about 500,000 trees per year between 2011 uh, and 2018. That's about you know, sort of 12% you know, tree cover loss you know, for the, the entire of the Western area uh, and for the whole country. Uh, it is extremely significant loss uh, that if it stays on pace, um, we'll see a city without any trees by 2044 when we're trying to reach adaptation goals uh, by 2030 and 2050. Um, the, the challenge that that brings uh, 
which is exacerbated by climate change is you know, flooding and landslides and uh, extreme heat and water shortages. You know, and this is affecting where everyone is exposed. Those who are the most vulnerable um, make up 60% uh, of the population, about 900,000 people um, who are you know, exposed and vulnerable to these kind of threats every day. Uh, and it's all increasing year by year. Uh, as a result, um, a rather ambitious goal was set uh, by the city government through the mayor and the Freetown City Council, linking hands with these communities in particular um, to attempt um, to create equitable and sustainable pathways to adaptation. Uh, and those dynamics are on the basis of the creation first of the four-year, five-year city plan, Transform Freetown, which had a resilience pillar that looked at how we move into um, an inclusive adaptation strategy. Um, the Freetown, the Treetown campaign came out of a goal that was set there to increase tree and vegetation cover uh, by 50%. Uh, this has led us into the first ever uh, Freetown uh, Climate Action Plan, uh, which was done in support, uh, with support by C40 and Urban Shift. Um, this takes us into 2030, um, where the Freetown, Freetown the Treetown as a uh, ecosystem-based adaptation approach is the anchor you know, for building you know, the more resilient people and infrastructure that has, will be our pathway uh, to adaptation with mitigation co-benefits. So the Freetown the Treetown campaign was then designed to take a big chunk out of the ambitious goal to, uh, to increase tree and vegetation cover by 50%. Uh, and that then led us to a 1 million tree goal. At the moment, we are at mm, roughly about 700,000 uh, trees of the 1 million tree goal. Um, and we expect to get to 1 million trees certainly by the end of 2024. Mm -hmm. um, we are in the process of setting new goals uh, for 2030 and 2050, which I'll get to in a minute. But the key dynamic here is <sighs> our biggest problem is deforestation. The, the levels and the pace of deforestation has changed the landscapes um, and has created um, you know, sort of the, the future, you know, is now determined by the level of change within the climate dynamics, which are, you know, adversely affecting the most vulnerable people. So then the question is, how do we change the value relationship between how we live with nature within the context of the, the urban landscape that makes up the city. Understanding that the majority of the city is informal um, and more vulnerable. So we need to sort of shift the way we live, the way that we cook, the way that we practice livelihood dynamics, all of those things have to be shifted. Uh, and so valuing our natural capital and using that, you know, sort of as a tool um, to both change the dynamic and finance the dynamic toward equitable and sustainable uh, pathways to adaptation was our thinking. So the, uh, the opportunity then was 
um, within the context of planting the one million trees. You plant them, you grow them, you digitally track each tree. You create a context for you know, some level of monetization, right? And the way that we did it is through attaching an impact token to every tree. And within the context of that, if we are planting, say, 200,000 trees, 200,000 trees represents about 10,000 metric tons of um, carbon uh, sequestered, stored. And within that context, we can take that into the carbon market uh, or into the private market uh, and get resources attached to that you know, through the impact that it's creating within the community, sell those as offset and bring those resources back into the community to you know, finance additional growth and the use of ecological infrastructure to solve critical um, climate risk. And that's, that's become the model uh, for Freetown the Tree Town and for a tree town model that we think can be utilized in other cities. So the idea here is that it's a community growing model. Community members grow the trees. They digitally track, geotag each tree at planting. Each, once that tree is verified by an independent team of verifiers, then a digital um, token, yeah? An impact token is attached to that tree. And we have built a platform that allows us to take those tokens and put them into a digital wallet. And then on the basis of having the digital tokens that are represented, representations of trees that are now being tracked every two to three months. So it's either every quarter, initially it was every two months, it's now gone to every quarter. Once a community grower tracks a tree, which they need to track every quarter, if the, the team of verifiers indicate that that tree is growing, they then receive a mobile payment, a micropayment of 1.2 million Leones, about $120 uh, into um, their mobile money account. And this is throughout the life of that tree. So the tree growth, growing it to establishment can be three years, can be five years, and seven years. So this is an amount of um, supplemental income that goes into a family, into groups of families, into communities that has had a discernible impact, uh, both on your know, sort of the life, the livelihood um, of those communities, but also um, on the, the renewed relationship between those communities uh, and the nature that surrounds them. And so we have now reestablished um, relationships of value uh, between communities that have used nature in a particular way, either for livelihood or for living, um, that where we have now been able to create a dynamic of shifting that relationship where they can do those things without, you know, sort of degrading dynamics toward nature, right? Um, that shift in the relationship is the critical way to ensure those sort of uh, sustainable pathways to adaptation. So the way that we do it is that we put short-term resources inside of communities to kind of change the relationship between you know, sort of uh, those people who live there and the nature they live in. Because you know, our human dynamic has now 
that moved into natural ecosystems and we're now sharing. So we then are able to circulate those resources because we value that natural capital. We move it into the, the carbon market and the resources we get from there go back into those communities. So we're building a sort of a, uh, a relationship of co-benefits where private, cap private capital is now driving you know, our um, ability uh, to reach uh, adaptation goals that have been set within the context of our climate action plan. So I've, I've kind of talked beyond my slides <laughs> um, to the, the dynamic of trying to explain you know, sort of the, the core you know, financing dynamics um, around the Free Town the Tree Town campaign. The, the key thing is that we have quantified and tried to understand through a process of co-creation and co-design um, and co-ideation around how we get to this you know, equitable future um, where adaptation can be equitable within the city. We are a city that cannot go into the private market on our own. We're not seen as bankable, but our natural resources, our natural capital rather, um, and the use of that natural capital in terms of uh, accessing markets and accessing resources that we can use to finance you know, our plans for adaptation is very possible. And so within the context of you know, exploring those possibilities, um, the, the tree town model was developed. And as of this moment, we're now in the process of exploring those markets, both the private market and the carbon market. Uh, we have been able to, uh, and it's critical first that you are able to attract you know, upfront investment and are able to leverage that investment in order to then you know, get the trees planted, growing, resources circulating, the kind of buy-in that's necessary where you can see that the protection you know, of the trees is actually happening and carbon is being sequestered. Uh, and then you can move those processes into markets. The key thing is the only way that this happens is if the relationship between you know, sort of the community, the, 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 the people who live in communities, you know, sort of our residents within cities, you know, and the nature that they live in and around, and the way in which we are planning our cities, if those things change, if those relationships change, if you know, there's primacy given you know, to the space of nature, within the context of our plans for the future. The only way that we can um, make a transition you know, in, that is equitable is that in that equity equation, nature is giving primacy, uh, given a seat at the table. Um, and for some, this could be considered frivolous if people are grappling with everyday dynamics of eating, right? Even the way we eat includes sort of our relationship with nature. So governments need to have the flexibility you know, and the ability um, to create alternatives um, that moves you know, uh, communities uh, in a, a more nature positive direction. And finance, it comes back to the way that we're able to finance you know, sort of those alternatives. And the use of our natural capital to do that uh, is a critical way forward.
Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Hubbard. I think what you've done there is really outline the importance, um, not just as you say, the critical point about how to that we need to change our value relationship with nature, but also it seems to me with the, the um, Free Town Tree Town project, we're also bridging the gap between those who are concerned with the environmental impacts, etc., but also being able to bridge the gap to the investors, to the capital markets, with a project that is able to also speak their language as well as speak um, to the, the, the language of the sort of more in, environmental focused community. And I think what's also tremendously interesting about your project as well is the use of, of, of technology. So you're using um, the digital tagging, um, how you create then those tokens and, and put into that the digital wallet. And then, as you say, that this is a model that could be used by other cities, particularly not just in Sierra Leone, but actually um, around the world, which is fantastic. And I think what's great about this is that you're really trying to get under the hood and really understand those financing dynamics so that this can actually be um, can actually be made a, a real a real world solution, um, so to say. And so thank you very much um, for, for sharing that with us. That, that was fantastic. Um, and now I'm going to hand over um, to um, some of the other co-authors um, of the report, um, in addition to Dr. Henriette and, and Mr. Hubbard. I'm joined by um, some colleagues of mine um, in the room. And so I'd like to first introduce uh, Ms. Marie Dupont, who's one of the co-authors of this new report, um, which is actually on the ODI website today. So please do um, take a look. Nature-Based Green Infrastructure, Review of African Experience and Potential. So this report was commissioned by the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in order to provide a region-wide view um, of how nature-based green infrastructure is being used in African countries. It's looking to explore the types of benefits that it's providing and also what we still need to discover and test about its potential. So we've heard some of some great examples from our keynotes today, but the, you know I think there's even more potential that we can be exploring. So Mary is a senior analyst in the Global Risks and Resilience Program who has particular expertise in climate risk management and ecosystems-based adaptation. Um, she's worked at ODI since uh, 2010, serving as the coordinator and then head of the knowledge management for the Climate Development and Knowledge Network, CDKN, um, and is now the technical lead for the Knowledge Hub for the Gender Equality in a Low Carbon World, or GLOW programme. Uh, Mary, over to you. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and hello, everyone. Well, when the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office invited ODI to look at nature-based green infrastructure, and we began work on uh, the first of two reports we're launching today uh, called uh, Nature-Based Green Infrastructure Review of African Experience and Potential. I knew I couldn't do it myself. I knew it would be absolutely essential to reach out to and partner with um, Eric and Elvina, uh, who today have shared their immense experience financing and um, working with community partners to actually affect 
these nature-based solutions on the ground. And so it was uh, together as a, a group of authors that we um, worked on uh, this, this report, which you, you see here and can find on the ODI website today. As Rebecca said, it's looking at how nature-based green infrastructure is being used instead of or to enhance uh, grey, that is built infrastructure in Africa, how these options are being selected in diverse contexts, how they're being financed, uh, what they're achieving, and what the role for development partners uh, such as FCDO could be in supporting them. Uh, so just to recap uh, what we said earlier in today's event, when we talk about uh, green infrastructure, or as we call it in the report, nature-based green infrastructure, we're really talking about using or harnessing ecological functions for societal benefit. And um, we refer in our reports to the definition by the World Conservation Union, IUCN. Now, how are nature-based green infrastructure uh, measures being used in Africa? Well, they're being used for disaster risk reduction, and you got a taste of that from uh, my colleagues Elvin and Eric today. They're being used uh, for a combination of uh, combating inland and coastal flood risk, and also for the management of erosion and landslide risk. But the key point is they're being used for a combination of disaster risk reduction benefits and the multiple development benefits that uh, green infrastructure can provide. So we also in our report uh, flag up uh, with some nice signage or signposting across the eight case studies that we use, um, these different development benefits that they're providing. And in particular, those two at the top of the diagram, the regulation of fresh water flows across landscapes and uh, the enhancement of marine and coastal fisheries productivity are very prominent in the literature review and the case studies that we cover. If you look at the bottom of the slide at agricultural productivity and that points there on human mobility, safety and well-being in the urban environment, those also come to the fore in the African uh, review. And uh, this one on human mobility is really talking about making cities more livable, more people-centered and people-friendly places. And then we're also seeing to perhaps a lesser extent, but emergent examples of how nature-based uh, green infrastructure infrastructure um, is being used for wastewater filtering, um, for cooling services, heat modification, which we could have equally put under the DRR category because they're sort of helping on a day-to-day -day basis, but also trees and planting and urban design are, are helping um, to really make people more comfortable for average temperatures as well. And also in the um, management of uh, air pollution and uh, optimizing building design. Now the ODI review did look at uh, eight case studies uh, in more depth. They were all multi-purpose, they were all multifunctional. This is what really uh, set them apart. So it wasn't possible in our report to go kind of sector by sector and say, oh, here's a good case study that illuminates this sector, because that's the very point they can deliver across sectors. And many of the interventions that we found um, have been following the increasing regional trend for coastal and marine ecosystem restoration, ri river catchment rehabilitation, 
and land degradation, neutrality or reversal. And when I say a regional trend, I mean both that a lot of these activities are ongoing or emergent across the African continent, but they also have political support. These are echoed in uh, the African Union's Agenda 2063, which is the blueprint for African development. These are also echoed in African uh, environment ministerial statements and various regional um, commitments as well. How are green infrastructure options chosen? Um, if I were really to boil it down, I'd say that the ODI review finds that if you take a strategic cross-sectoral approach to mapping out a city, a district, or a landscape level units, development and DRR needs, if you don't, in other words, take a narrow sectoral view, but if you're asking, you know, what's our policy challenge at that kind of landscape scale or portfolio-wide scale, and if you do that in a highly consultative, participatory way to really capture public sentiment and their priorities, get their buy into it, then our case studies are showing that stakeholders are likely to favor the multifunctional benefits that nature-based green infrastructure can provide. And um, Eric and Elvina have both given you a flavor of that in their remarks today. You can read more about it in the report. Um, there was a, a very, extensive um, consultation process involving many different uh, diverse civil society groups in, in Freetown. And, uh, you know, we also have an example coming from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, where there were what were called design charrettes, uh, a kind of iterative stakeholder process for surfacing the different um, intervention options, which ended up prioritizing the green option. So how is the business case made? Um, well, really, the social values of nature-based green infrastructure make a strong case for public sector investment. That, that's the broader economic case, um, precisely because of those multifunctional benefits that they provide. The financial case around the disaster risk reduction benefits emerges as a really strong component in our review. And we give an example from Ethiquini municipality in South Africa, which is um, the greater Durban area in KwaZulu-Natal. And they've done a fantastic uh, job, uh, which um, I, I think some of our commentators may refer to later, about making the business case for a transformative um, riverine management program, which demonstrates that if you invest now in green infrastructure, um, for every rand that you invest, you will avoids um, a higher public spend of about 3.4 rands on addressing losses and damages from flood events and, and other disruptions later. And we saw um, from a very detailed um, financial analysis in Dar es Salaam as well, that um, you get a rapid return on investment, um, you know, from, from green infrastructure. And their financial analysis was showing that if you invest now in the green option, you will have a return on investment of seven to 19 years, depending on what, you know, measures of planting um, green areas in the in the urban center you select and so forth. 
Now, more on financing. Um, my colleagues, uh, Leticia and Adriana, will in a minute um, introduce you to the sister volume um, that we are launching today called Mapping Finance Sources for Nature-Based Solutions in Africa. And, uh, and they'll delve into that. And what I would say based on the case studies that we did in the first volume is that we see how many project leaders are being really highly entrepreneurial in using public funding from domestic, and multilateral and often bilateral sources to support some of the data analysis and some of that pilot testing um, to provide a proof of concept for green infrastructure solutions at small scale before then scaling out wider. And then they're deploying things like the marketing of carbon credits, sustainability impact tokens to private actors who could be institutional investors or individual investors. And so those case studies that we develop in more detail are showing a real interesting um, sequencing and blending of those different types of finance. And also, um, frankly, the environmental, social and governance potential um, from many of these schemes. What are nature-based green infrastructure interventions uh, achieving, uh, you know, across the African region? Well, just to reiterate, they're proving to be cost-effective in reducing flood risk in multiple locations. This is a finding that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, published last year in its um, adaptation report and was particularly highlighted in Chapter 9, their Africa chapter, and we've really um, shown that again with the new evidence um, that we are putting on the table in our report. And we're also seeing this landscape-wide promise for DRR combined with um, land productivity enhancement measures and, and enhancing the green lung qualities of the land and particularly in extended urban areas such as Freetown, such as Ethiquini Municipality, which we cover in the report. We're seeing that ecosystem-based approaches are indispensable in arid and semi-arid environments as well. We've not said too much about that this morning, but we do have on the line um, as well, Chris Henderson from Practical Action. And if we've got time later on um, in the discussion session, he could speak more about practical actions work um, with various partners and very much led by communities in North Darfur, Sudan, for um, integrated water management and land rehabilitation solutions, which are really tackling the scourge of land degradation. We're seeing that urban flood risk management um, is uh, giving way, it's, it's prioritizing urban parks with swales. These are kind of, you know, um, landscaped areas with um, wide and, um, and shallow depressions, which can capture the flood water, act as sponge areas in, in African cities. The strategic use of riverbank plantings to shore up um, riverbanks. The practicalities vary very much by location. They have to be um, locally adapted and context specific, but those are just some examples um, to layer on to what you've already heard this morning. And we're seeing in coastal marine environments that the DRR and fisheries productivity elements are, are coming together highly effectively. Carbon stores um, are being capitalized upon within mangrove and seagrass environments. These are very much emergent elements. We've documented them in Kenya, Madagascar, and the Seychelles in particular. Um, better than expect, expected consequences from some of these interventions that we weren't necessarily looking for, but really shone out, were some of the 
leadership strengthening of women and young people and um, their economic empowerment, but also their increased capacity and political leadership in these localities. Some of the things we don't know are not at all well documented um, in the African region. And, and this speaks to the overall lack of monitoring, evaluation and learning um, are some of the long-term outcomes, not just for people, but for biodiversity in nature. And we document in our reports how some actors are seeing green infrastructure solutions as highly attractive because of their adaptability, their versatility, potentially into the long term. But we haven't really documented what that looks like. If you plant one species of shrub or tree as part of your green infrastructure solution, but then the climate envelope changes in that area and you need to change the vegetation profile, how are you managing that landscape? We haven't quite trialed that at scale or documented it yet. And we need more on the on researching the benefits, the disbenefits and the limitations of green infrastructure in Africa for wastewater filtering, for building design and cooling, um, for localized air quality um, modulation or modification, and as I say, for biodiversity overall. So recommendations for development partners are really to take or to support cities, localities and governments to take a strategic portfolio wide approach, um, optimizing those DRR and development outcomes and recognizing that these processes take resources, just a, a data documentation and analysis level to bring together scientific, local and indigenous knowledges um, you need coordinators like Eric and Elvina. It doesn't happen for free. People need time to pull this together and um, to be brokers in these processes. There's a key role for public funding across these areas. Ensure the donor or development partner is not introducing great infrastructure biases into local processes. And one of the things I'm going to quote um, Eric here, one of the things that he said in the formulation of our report, you'll find it printed there is, development partners should endorse and fund locally led adaptation that's mandating the use of ecological infrastructure to reduce climate risk and to create green jobs. It should be the starting point. Development partners could also support feasibility work to establish those long-term financing mechanisms for the ongoing management and maintenance of NBSGI, which um, Elvina stressed earlier in, in the presentation, and for supporting that better monitoring, evaluation and learning, not just for human development outcomes, but also for nature. And they could be supporting studies on the valuation of nature in Africa writ large and using that knowledge to actively inform international donor programs, as well as national and local actions. And I think that we've seen through this process that development partners need to do a better job of supporting centers of excellence in Africa with African researchers on this agenda. With that, I'll draw my remarks to a close and hand over to Rebecca and to my colleagues. Um, thank you very much, Mary. Thank you very much for that really informative overview um, of some of the key findings from the report. Um, and to complement um, what um, Mary has just presented, I'm now going to hand over um, to Adriana and to Letitia, who are going to talk us briefly um, through the um, financing landscape for nature-based solutions in Africa.
Excellent. Thank you very much, Rebecca. And thank you, Mary, Eric, and uh, Arietta for this excellent presentation, all extremely interesting. Um, I'm Dr. Leticia Cotinotti, a research fellow at UDI, and I'm joined also by Adriana Quevedo, who is co-author on this report. Um, so we are delighted to present this work on mapping finance sources for nature-based solutions in Africa. Um, and we'd like first to, to front load really that there are very large financing and funding gaps for biodiversity under which nature-based solutions um, fall under. And to, to throw out some very frightening figures here, um, so there are very different estimates, but it's a range and it, you know, it is something estimated between 400 billion per year to up to 1 trillion per year globally from now till 2050 in terms of funding gap for biodiversity. Um, so now that we have a knowledge, the stark uh, difference between needs and between current provision, um, let's delve into it. Um, so the, the ODI review, um, comes from uh, a place where, um, where the, the current landscape in terms of financing is extremely fragmented. Um, and so that is uh, an issue because that means that there is an area of actors, of processes, um, and that means it requires times, it requires uh, resources for African countries to engage. Um, and to, in a sense, you know, orient themselves on who is doing what. Um, so really, please understand this paper as a sort of, of first port of call. Um, so four focal points in countries uh, to orient themselves, but also for development partners um, to identify the difficulties that countries face when they want to engage and receive um, finance for NBS. Um, and in particular, we think, obviously, we're the upper, so we do think this is a timely report, um, but because we know in terms of international negotiations and, you know, the biodiversity governance space, that in December last year at the Montreal so Convention on Biolo Biolo Biological Diversity, that um, there has been the adoption and the commitment of um, developed countries to provide 20 billion per year by 2030 to developing countries specifically for biodiversity. Um, so here we are with this review um, mapping out uh, the biodiversity finance architecture and how does that um, add up with this new commitment. Um, and you may have noticed I am I am using perhaps somewhat a bit uh, casually interchangeably biodiversity and nature-based solutions. Um, this is because um, when looking for the sources of finance, there is a clear issue in terms of accounting and in terms of tagging. So meaning that, um, so NBS, nature-based solutions, is actually fragmented under different names. Um, and different donors, different processes will tag it as green infrastructure finance, carbon finance, climate finance, etc. I've put a, a few there. Um, and so, you know, most of these projects that are financed under these different tagging, taggings do all have NBS elements, even though they're not branded as such. Um, but so this is again to pile up on the, this is a very fragmented space. And even in the way we talk about it, this adds in terms of complexity for countries um, to identify and then to access sources, um, sources of finance for NBS. Um, 
So here is our um, map uh, at very high level of the sources of finance for nature-based solutions in Africa. Um, and this is a nutshell shell view to signpost what we're going to uh, delve into. So first, we'll be talking about public finance, and I'll hand over to Adriana for this. Then we'll cover blended finance sources and then private finance sources before concluding with some uh, recommendations for development partners. Um, so please, Adriana. Thanks, Letitia. Um, as she says, I'll be covering the public finance space. And um, as you can see, it can be separated into domestic finance and international finance. So first, if we start with domestic public finance, um, we see that finance can come from the governments itself through various means, whether it's budgetary allocations from taxes, service charges, subsidies, guarantees, borrowing, bonds, equity, etc. Um, or also, sorry, from direct transfers from international contributions. Uh, I think it's interesting here to note that um, it's, under, it's really important to understand the development priorities of the country, especially regarding nature-based solutions, to understand how they would use that money, whether it's through programs um, or other means. Um, overall, in this, in, for country governments, it's also important to understand their limitations um, and a, a very common one is the lack of consistency across policies regarding nature-based solutions. It's understandable given its complexity and how it cuts across lots of different sectors. Um, another limitation is that country governments in developing countries often face multiple threats, not just the climate and bio biodiversity threats. Therefore, they may not often be prioritized um, through funding. And the last limitation is the limited inclusion of nature-based um, solution or nature, nature accounting and its value in decision-making. But there are some three key successes that we need to um, highlight here. And first is the increased capacities of certain national and subnational governments through national and subnational climate funds. And these have been established in various countries in Africa that has supported the country uh, or the government to access and coordinate different types of finance for climate and biodiversity. And the other two successes that it's interesting to understand is how there are supports that have been targeted to improve the enabling environment. So this includes one, fiscal transfer mechanisms for least developed countries, for example, uh, set up by the UN uh, CDF locale, and they've provided local level performance-based climate resilience grants. Um, so it's interesting to see how they top up, uh, top up local um, budgets by up to 20% uh, in order to cover the additional costs of making investments climate resilient. And then lastly is the Wealth Accounting and Valuation Ecosystem Services WAVES program managed by the World Bank. 
this has been uh, interesting to see how they've helped developing countries include natural capital and ecosystem services into their national fiscal accounts. So now going into the international public finance, you, for those familiar in this space, you see the uh, usual suspects. So overall, international climate funds have been key sources and catalysts of public and blended finance for nature-based solutions for developing countries. And as you can see here, the main three funds under the UNFCCC financial mechanisms the Green Climate Fund, the Green Environment Facility, and the Adaptation Fund have been very instrumental. Um, in, the, in these spaces, it's really important to understand the different requirements needed and, op and operational process that they go through uh, and, and how they've prioritized nature-based solutions. Um, through uh, these three climate funds, there are some limitations to really um, highlight that is persistent and, and perhaps needs confronting. And these include, very briefly, the time consuming, um, the time it takes um, to process the accreditation um, and also the project approvals of um, any future programs. And this induces transaction costs to uh, accredited entities. And these accredited entities could be governments or even international organizations and private organizations. Also competition across accreditation entities is high. Um, Co-finance ratios, for example, from the GEF are also high, which means it's difficult to secure finance from other financial providers um, given the low returns to investments often is the case and high in high risk areas and often nature-based solutions falls under the category of public goods where the benefits are difficult and sometimes unethical to monetize and then the the last um climate fund that you can see here it's a non-unfccc climate um finance mechanism is the climate investment funds, and they've recently launched a new nature, people and climate program that deploys concessional funding to low and middle income countries. And it's specifically to pilot and scale nature-based solutions. And uh, these have come from multiple bilateral funders, such as Italy, Spain, Sweden, and the UK. And at COP27 last year, there was a, a big announcement of an additional 350 million being put into this program to nine countries, where seven of those are from Africa. And so lastly, I'll briefly explain the financial sources from bilateral um, financial providers. And here, I think it's interesting to note that um, since 2002, the provision of finance for biodiversity objectives um, from country donors as measured in as ODA, Official Development Assistance, has steadily increased since 2002 from 100 million until 2017 reaching 1.5 billion. Yes, we can contest this and say it's not enough still. 
And also very important to know is that this trend has declined since to approximately 0.5 billion a year in 2020. So this is really worrying in a time when nature needs to be preserved and rehabilitated. And in Africa, we did go into further details into the top three donors that have provided finance for nature-based solutions. And you can read that in the report. Um, these are from USID, Germany, and the EU, and each of them have um, tagged or approached nature-based solutions in different ways um, and also uh, have used different def definitions. I think a, a crucial uh, point at the end of this slide, I think we need to point to um, there's been big donor commitments and announcements of finance in last year's COP, Climate COP 27 and also the Bio, Biodiversity COP 15. Um, lots of announcements, lots of money being, um, large pots of money being announced from many countries, which we go into detail in the report, but the, the crucial question is, is this still enough and how will they meet their financial commitments and how can they, they be held accountable? I'll leave it there for now, over to Letitia. Mm. And I think you're quite right ending on the, the fact that we do have a fiscal squeeze and public budgets are at the moment getting tightened and so hence blended finance um, coming up on the agenda as one very important uh, tool um, in this finance architecture. Blended finance um, is not an instrument, it's a strategic use of public uh, finance for the mobilization of additional uh, private finance. Um, so it basically combines public and private money where we use the public uh, funds to de-risk um, a given investment. So the public money assumes a public investor institutions, assumes a position of what's called an anchor investor. So it provides debt equity um, guarantee that allows to bring down um, the risk and return profile of the investment so that it can attract private finance. Um, and there are two reasons why this type of setup is particularly helpful for NBS. One is that we have a very limited, limited um, data record on NBS uh, return profile, and that affects the bankability or you know, investment attractivity um, of NBS. And the second reason is because um, NBS actually operates on very long-term uh, timelines, um, as Mary, as Dr. Henrietta, um, as Eric Hubbard were mentioning. And so that means that NBS requires patient capital and public funds are best placed to provide this public, um, this patient capital so that it can provide, you know, wait until NBS has this more ready revenue stream. Um, but we have a note, of course, that uh, blended finance is not this um, magic solution and that not all NBS um, actually would fit a blended finance setup. So we're thinking in, um, I think, Mary, there is a, an excellent detail of that in, uh, in the report uh, that you led about soil fertility and food security in Darfur. Um, so the key actors um, in this space of blended finance are the multilateral development banks, as well as the international climate funds. Um, they are the main providers. And 
as I was um, saying at the very beginning of this presentation, so because of you know difficulties in terms of tracking and accounting, it's difficult to know how much has been disbursed by the public entities and how much has been mobilized specifically for NBS. But we do know that for climate action in 2021, um, the MDBs and the International Climate Fund uh, so disbursed 51 billion and mobilized another 12 billion um, for climate action. It's actually a decline compared to 2020. Um, but we do have hopes because, as mentioned by Adriana, that there have been several commitments, in particular from the multi multilateral development banks. They have made two commitments um, in the last few years, one to mainstream nature in their operations and two um, to increase to scale up mobilization. So this is a space to watch out. Then, um, so the last uh, type of institutions, export credit agencies. Um, these are agencies that support national exporters in accessing international markets. So they ex offer export import um, credits or loans or on basically more favorable terms uh, than private commercial banks. So we didn't find any record of export credit agencies um, providing already uh, some finance um, for NBS. However, we have watched that the governance space has been moving because um, so a group of donor countries that are part of the OECD have started um, moving into this space and have included um, climate adaptation and nature as one of the sectors um, for um, export credit agencies to start moving in. So let's this is, again, space to watch. Um, last, I think that we should mention when it comes to blended finance, um, the Biofin initiative at the UNDP. So it's a biodiversity finance uh, initiative, which has been very crucial. That does exactly this bridge between development donors and brokering with private sector um, so that countries can develop their own biodiversity finance plans so that they can be sustainable on the long term. Um, last, we have the private finance, um, and most of it is actually coming from philanthropic funding in the form of grants at the moment. So for the reasons I explained um, in the private slide, basically very difficult to attract NBS investment. Um, so at the moment, there have been like lots of pledges at COP and at Davos, for example, earlier this year of, you know, coalitions of philanthropies pledging a lot of money. We have to mention that even though there have been all these pledges, one is very difficult to track progress on them, very difficult to you know have transparency on what is happening on the ground. And last, that Africa is still the continent that is receiving the less philanthropic funding for um for nature conservation, for biodiversity, for NBS. Um and last. Uh, there is obviously corporations that have been moving into the space, but more from the point of view of what um, what strategy could they put in place to mitigate biodiversity, biodiversity risk to their operations? So these are not open calls. Um, this is not money that countries can access, but it's definitely a space where development partners may want to enter to influence the conversation. Um, we shall end on a few uh, quick take on recommendations for development partners. Adriana, please. Thanks, Letitia. Um, just to summarize uh, key recommendations from the report, we do go in much more depth in there, but we wanted to highlight the following. So first, development partners have a really unique role to provide technical assistance to African governments 
to build their capacities in various ways. And one of the main ways is mainstreaming nature-based solutions into policies, strategies, and action plans. Um, since it's such a complex um, concept um, and also even more complex when you think about it operationally, this would be very beneficial. Secondly, is on the understanding of the complexity of the financial architecture, as, as you got a glimpse on the various types of financial sources, uh, it's, it's often a burden for African governments to understand this and therefore um, need support to access all these different types of finance. Um, but hand, that something that goes hand in hand with this is the identification of relevant uh, financial sources for those countries. And, and in particular, as I've highlighted the complexities behind accessing finance from international climate funds, um, this has been a particular focus for a while and development partners are uniquely placed to um, help countries um, maneuver around the processes and therefore access the finance that is urgently needed. And then last two is the development partners are really in a good position to improve coordination and collaborations uh, across each other. Um, often um, we need to think about the level of competition on the ground um, to access different types of finance or provide different types of finance. Um, but we need, oh, we need to um, really work better together in order to maximize finance for those in actual needs. And lastly, um, basically development partners are very well placed to be knowledge brokers and especially in building the business cases for nature-based solutions and share learnings from other countries uh, for financing nature-based solutions. So um, given time constraints, I'll leave it there for now. We're happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much for your attention and your time. Um, thank you very much, Letitia and Adriana Amari, for outlining the um, findings of the report. As I said, they, it can be found online. Um, just in the last sort of 10 minutes or so, um, I'd like to just turn to um, a few expert um, commentators who we have online, um, just to give their sort of two-minute kind of take um, on what they've heard. Um, so I'd like to turn first to um, Miss Jessie Apavu, who is the senior manager at C40 Cities and also the regional coordinator for Africa for the Urban Shift program. Uh, Jesse, over to you. Thank you so much, Nadia. I hope you can hear me. Yes, we can, yes. Great, thank you so much. Um, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jesse Apavu, and as Rebecca's mentioned, I head up the Urban Shift program at C40 Cities. In case you're not familiar with C40 Cities, it's a network of cities that supports um, cities on raising their climate ambition and half their emissions by 2030. And um, it's been really good to hear what the previous presenters have mentioned on nature-based solutions. It's great to see that nature-based solutions is being, um, there's light being shone on it and that there's great significance placed on NBS as it offers a pathway to building climate resilience lowering emissions and supporting socioeconomic development, as well as protecting biodiversity. And all of this whilst reaping multiple co-benefits. And as Mary mentioned, it is 
practically impossible to pin it down, to pin down NBS to one specific sector because the the benefits have far-reaching um, consequences further down society. So the example that you had given of the work being done in Durban, for example, it has multiple societal benefits. There's green jobs being provided when the project gets implemented on the ground. There's better air quality, better water quality, greater ecosystem services and goods provided to the whole of the um, Etiquini municipality. Just to throw another sort of scary figure out there, adding to what Letitia um, and Adriana have mentioned, I'm so sorry, I think my internet connection is backing up on my side. In case you can't hear me, please let me know. We can hear you. Okay, thank you so much. Sorry about that. So another scary figure is um, from the UNEP State of Finance for Nature, um, State of Finance for Nature for Cities report that was published late last year, which mentioned that in order for us to remain within the 1.5 degree scenario, we need to be investing about $11 trillion between now and 2050. Now, that seems like a really big figure, $11 trillion. At the same time, it is a really big opportunity for us to be investing in nature-based solutions. And I'm glad that Eric is on the line to give us an example of one of these cities that is investing in nature-based solutions. So the work that Freetown is doing on Freetown, the tree town, is really, really interesting, really important, and really showing the way in terms of how to channel investment into nature-based solution at the scale that is needed to start transforming and really changing the development pathway in a lot of our cities. Likewise, Kigali is also delivering on some incredible work. Kigali is one of the urban shift cities, and it's working on rest restoring about 500 hectares of urban wetlands, and that's being done through Jeff funding. Again, one of the big funds that you've mentioned in the previous presentation. And in order to do that, um, there are multiple ways that can be done. And this is what I would like to just focus my last two minutes or so for the development partners in the room is that most master plans, most development plans, most capital expenditure budgets are heavily biased towards gray infrastructure. So it is imperative that we work alongside cities to demonstrate to both policy and decision makers the benefits of green infrastructure. And these benefits are economic, social, climate, health, and financial benefits. We need to be able to quantify those benefits over the life cycle of the green infrastructure. If we don't do that, I think we will continue down the pathway of gray infrastructure in order to be able to strike the right balance between green and gray infrastructure. We need to be able to demonstrate these benefits and quantify them. Like Mary mentioned, every $1 in Etiquini reaps about $1.80 to $3.40 in benefits. So it's important for us to, as development partners, to be quantifying that, to be demonstrating that, so that we make the business case really strong for nature-based solutions in urban settings, which is where most of the effort towards building um, climate resilience is going um, in right now and in the future. The second point that I want to mention is one that is mostly focused on supply and demand. So there's a need for us to support cities to develop sizable, 
pipeline of green infrastructure that can provide a way to channel that $11 trillion that we're talking about. The way we can do that is by supporting cities and connecting them to PPF, so project preparation facilities. I think you've mentioned some of them in the previous presentation, in order to turn these project ideas that are emerging from climate action plans, and Eric mentioned the Freetown Climate Action Plan and climate change strategies that are out there, turning those into sizable pipelines that will attract public and private investment. So beyond those project preparation facilities, it's also important for us to be connecting um, cities to sources of capital to accelerate MBS implementation. So it's one that is clearly on supply and demand, and it's one where development partners in the room and everybody else out there can really support to, um, to be connecting, connecting the dots, making sure that um, we are aggregating projects to make these pipelines sizable and attract the investment that is needed in order to start channeling the $11 trillion um, um, so that we build resilient cities, so that we build the future for everybody. So thank you so much for listening to me. Thanks for having me on, on the panel today. I'm really sorry about my internet connection, but I hope it held out. Yes, no, it did. Thank you very much. Um, and, you know, obviously, Jesse, you made important reference to development parts, and that's a great segue, actually, to, to the next commentator that I would like to invite um, is um, Ms. Tremaine Stanton-Kennedy. Um, so Ms. Stanton-Kennedy um, supports the UK's development assistance to Southern African countries, and she's the climate lead in the Pan-Africa Department for the FCDO, based in the British Embassy in Lusaka, Zambia. Um, so, Ms. Kennedy, great to get your reflections um, as, as a as a development part, representative of a development partner um, on what you've heard today. Thanks. And thank you everyone for joining us and the really interesting case examples that have been shared today. I wanted to reiterate why we commissioned this work. So a lot of the dialogue around nature-based solutions tends to be at the landscape level, and there isn't a lot of conversation about nature-based solutions as functional infrastructure, particularly in urban or built environments, which again, is one of the most underfunded and under-resourced areas on the African continent. So noting how risky innovative infrastructure can be, especially infrastructure that is not only different, but has to respond to a changing climate and the people within that landscape, we felt the most strategic way to start having this conversation more effectively was to see what are people already doing? Who are the exemplars? How can we show that this isn't an academic idea? This is something that can be done and it can be done in the African context. So today, I think we've seen great examples of how nature-based solutions aren't just new, that they represent ancient ways of building and managing landscapes. And it's only now that it's considered innovative and risky and it's that risk which is something we need to overcome if we're going to get the right kind of investment into this infrastructure space. And I think we have to acknowledge as well that many of the benefits coming out of this type of infrastructure are social, they're public. Therefore, there will never be that rate of return necessarily to attract private sector investors. But how can we do that? How can we approach these blended finance models? Because of course, cities around the world are notoriously underfunded. So. It's not only an African challenge in that sense. So 
what I'd really like to see happen from today is that ongoing conversation, these networks that are created, tapping better into other networks so that we break down these silos and start having a real conversation about MBS as infrastructure and closing those gaps so that we're thinking about future climates, future populations, and creating that space now and protecting that space through planning, dialogue, and design. And to this, to ensure that nature-based solutions will be a part of that future city or that future landscape. So they are both option and solution. And that thinking and conversation has to happen now because once you pave it over, it's very difficult to go back. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, great, great to hear um, your your perspectives from that that development plan perspective. Thank you so much. Um, I'm now just going to invite the um, last two commentators. Unfortunately, uh, as always, I'm going to ask you to just be as as brief as possible as we're we're sort of slightly um, over time. But I want to make sure you do have time to comment. Um, so first of all, um, I'd like to um, invite Mr. Emil Harry Harry Kishun from the Climate Development Knowledge Network, CDKN, who's based in South African NGO, South South North. Um, he's a thematic lead for C C thematic finance lead for CDKN, and his work focuses on understanding systems transformations. Um, over to you. Great, thanks so much. I know we're running out of time, so I'll keep my comments quite short. I guess the perk of going near the end is a lot of what I wanted to say has been said already. So what I'll keep uh, my comments to is rather the characteristics of finance. We've heard a lot uh, about finance already, and I think Jesse Oto covered a lot of what I wanted to say around TA, building out of project pipelines and project preparation facilities. But I want to draw a parallel with regards to locally-led adaptation finance, where we talk about the characteristics of finance needed for that, and nature-based solutions. And, and just to flag as well, we're talking about nature-based solutions, but there is something to be said about nature-positive solutions and not assuming that all nature-based solutions are, in fact, nature-positive. But onto the characteristics. When we talk about LLA financing, we talk about patient, predictable, risk-seeking, flexible, coordinated, robust, and simple. And uh, if we had time to break those down, I think we'd find a lot of connections to what has been said uh, throughout uh, this event on finance. But looking more specifically than what this funding should be used for, and Jesse touched on this, early stage investment and pipeline development, uh, we're not going to draw in, in the current state of play, private sector funding for developing out or conceptualizing or proving the bankability of nature-based solutions. So there's a huge role for public and donor funding, as well as philanthropic funding, to be used to build out this pipeline and to prove the bankability or financial feasibility, rather, of nature-based solutions, including for infrastructure. And the last point I'll make is around supporting knowledge and innovation brokers. It was mentioned by Murray earlier that this is also a role that funders can play, but also a role funders can play in funding these knowledge and innovation brokers, who in many regards can act, play a key role as an honest, uh, an honest broker for bringing together non-traditional stakeholders, understanding differentiated and common priorities and understandings of values, and Eric mentioned this earlier before, is unpacking and broadening our understanding and valuation of nature and building innovative partnerships for NBS implementation and financing in the long term and in a sustainable manner. Let me leave my comments there, back over to you. Um, thank you so much. Um, I think your point about, um, you know, not all interventions are, are nature positive. That's a really important one to keep in mind. And, you know, we can see 
um, through a range of, of climate interventions and the, the significant risk of maladaptation um, and actually one, one embeds risk. So that's a really important point. Thank you so much. Um, also, so I'd like to just call as well on, now on Dr. Nadia Sitas from the Centre for Sustainability at Stellenbosch University, who describes herself, I think this is wonderful, as a pridemic, pri a practitioner with a foot also in academia. Excellent, excellent. Over to you, Nadia. Hi, everyone, and thanks very much. Um, yeah, very proud pracademic. Um, and uh, thank you so much for having me here. This was such a welcome guide to have the privilege of having a sneak preview on, especially um, my other role, which is a coordinating lead author of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Process for um, Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. And I'm currently working on the Nexus Assessment um, and previously an author of the Africa Assessment. And why this guide is so useful is that there's normally a gap of published work um, that has been carried out in Africa, highlighting African research expertise and examples. And so it's incredibly useful to have a study which outlines so many of the co-benefits of nature-based infrastructure, and especially those which are multifunctional and cut across food, water, kind of climate, biodiversity, and health, uh, which is what the Nexus assessment looks like. So I'm going to take this as an opportunity to also uh, say that um, please get involved in, in those science policy processes and act as reviewers, because that's how we can incre increase the evidence base. Um, it's also a really exciting time because, as many of the speakers have mentioned, a lot of the infrastructure in Africa hasn't been rolled out yet. So there are multiple opportunities to proactively design for more transformative outcomes of nature-based um, infrastructure initiatives. And this is moving beyond just um, building adaptive capacities to those that can address um, current inequalities and ecosystem degradation simultaneously. Um, and maybe just to mention that, you know, the finance and investments don't don't exist in a vacuum. They're part of these broader governance structures. So really thinking quite intentionally about um, governing these complex systems, uh, building on best uh, case studies. So it's wonderful to see um, so many new case studies where we really can demonstrate um, the co-benefits of these types of interventions. Um, and really thinking about, you know, nature-based um, infrastructure provides an entry point for for systems thinking um, and thinking about how to better link environment and development opportunities, uh, because increasing uh, there's increasing evidence that uh, sustainable development is about the interdependence of, of nature and people rather than just one or another. So lots of things to think about, um, but maybe one is around collaborative governance, especially bringing multiple people into a room when you're designing these projects. Um, and maybe one thing that I'll focus on is this, um, the need for long-term visioning and, and visioning of these processes to really bring in multiple voices, perspectives, and especially of young people um, living in urban areas. And if we look at the demographic trends of Africa, those are really, really important. And not to just bring them in in terms of um, being vulnerable or marginalized communities, but sources of kind of inspiration and innovation as well. Um, so maybe I'll leave it there, um, but just a plug for, for you know, holding the, holding the complexity and working with it as we design um, some of these interventions going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not being um, frightened by the complexity. Um, I think sometimes that can, when we think of something being so complex or, or as a wicked problem, um, one can be paralyzed, um, but actually should see it as, an as something to inspire us to, um, to innovate. Um, very quickly, uh, Chris Henderson from Practical Action, your kind of one minute take um, on all of this, if that's possible. Well, I agree with, I'm really excited to hear what people have presented and uh, the green infrastructure, understand the importance of that. Um, I got a few things to say, but maybe honing it down to probably the key one for me, as head of agriculture and practical action, 
And looking at the case study that uh, Mary drew from, um, the integrated water resources management in, in Sudan, I mean, there are two, two points. One is that type of green infrastructure doesn't have benefits if it's, if it's treated in isolation. We've got to look at how you build capacity in the community and resolve conflict over natural resources and have agreement in those communities. And that means the different actors have really got to get together, the government advisors, the development institutions, the communities, the different stakeholders. And we look at Sudan right now and we see the conflict that's going on there. And at the heart is probably the tension between pastoralists and agro-pastoralists and different groups sort of vying for power to control natural resources. So we've got to work with nature. We've got to make sure that conflict doesn't exist. And as a practitioner organization, we do that through building capacity through work, you know, being a facilitator of dialogue between these groups. It's not just about having the green infrastructure technology. But one final comment I would make to this audience is, um, I think the, the importance of agriculture as a nature-based solution has probably been understated. It's mentioned in the report on green infrastructure. It was mentioned in the finance. But actually, agriculture is a nature-based solution. And if it's regenerative, then actually it's going to be building the natural capital that development will, will can use to get people out of poverty. That's a source of finance that hasn't really been talked about and quite often is done in a way which leads to maladaptation. We need more focus on uh, ecosystem-based, landscape-based um, agriculture that doesn't degenerate, regenerative agriculture. And that's actually in, in the Defoe case study that. Um, was taken in this uh, in this uh, green infrastructure one is at the heart of what creates benefits for those communities is actually managing those natural resources in a sustainable way. So something perhaps to look at with from both the green infrastructure perspective and from the finance perspective is is how we can make better use of um, regenerative agriculture work as a nature-based solution for people. Thank you, Chris. I think that's a really important point to keep in mind and also speaks to the point about kind of breaking down some of the silos of practice um, so that we, we can really approach um, this, as uh, Nadia says, from, from a systems angle. Um, so that draws us um, to um, conclusion of our event today. And um, we've slightly gone over time, but I hope you will all um, forgive us for doing so, because I think we've heard um, some really rich um, and interesting um, examples of work that's going on um, in different countries um, and some of the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. So I'd really like to thank um, the speakers today. I'd really like to thank Alvina, Eric, Jesse, uh, Emil, Nadia, Chris, and Tremaine from the FCDO, as well as my colleagues um, here in the room. And I really hope today's event um, has helped galvanize us to continue to push for green infrastructure. But as, as Emil says, one that is also um, nature positive um, and also to encourage you to read the um, ODI report hopefully you will find that useful and informative please do drop us a line um, if you've got any comments so thanks again um, for joining us today and um, thank you so much have a great day thanks thank you thanks everyone